please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. What does it mean to receive fully the gift of the call of God? What does it mean to receive fully the gift of the call of God? We are in our series called His Story. And the God who made heaven and earth in Genesis 1 and 2, the God who is in the process of saving heaven and earth through Noah, as we heard recently, the God who judges the earth, as we heard in the preceding story, not read as part of our series, the Tower of Babel, is the God who calls. We worship a God who creates, a God who saves, a God who judges, but also a God who calls. What does it mean to hear the call of God? Now, in order to answer that question, I'm going to look at the first three verses, or maybe the first four verses of Genesis 12. So you're going to need your text, and I'm hoping that it will appear up on the screen if I'm fortunate, but we're going to to work on that. But you're going to need your text And we're going to consider in some detail this issue of God's call as part of our series. Can I just pause as we begin and remind you of the importance of the call of Abraham? Paul goes so far as to say in Galatians, if you are Christ, listen to this, if you are Christ, you are Abram's offspring. We could go so far as to say this morning, brothers and sisters, if Abram wasn't called, if Abram didn't respond to the call, you and I wouldn't be here, period. We stand on the shoulders of this man. If only this didn't happen, we wouldn't be here, but it did happen. And we stand on his shoulders. And we need to pause and consider it in great detail because it is the foundation of the beginning of the church and the community of the people of God in a deeply important sense. So look at your text. There it is up on the screen. I'm very happy. And we're going to look at it in detail. I want to look at the context of the call. I want to look at the cause of the call. I want to look at the comprehensiveness of the call. I want to look at the contents of the call. And I want to look at the chronology of the call. So first, the context of the call. That is to say, how it comes. Now, we could go racing past this, but of all my points, this might be the most important. It has to do with the orientation of the world in which we find ourselves, a very different orientation than the world in which we find ourselves today. And here is the key point, brothers and sisters. How does the call of God come to Abram? Here is the the central idea. Reality exists before you. Stay with me. Reality exists before you. You don't come to reality. Reality comes to you. Abram is not the initiator in this story. He is the respondent. He is not the giver of this story. He is the receiver. The entire ancient world is oriented fundamentally differently to the one that you and I find ourselves in and live and move and have our being in. Here's C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man, talking about how things have changed. Listen, for the wise men of old, he said, the problem was how to conform the soul to reality. 
You hear what he's saying? If I drop you down the Middle Ages, if I put you in the Dark Ages, if I put you in the third century of the Christian church, the fundamental problem is there's reality. Here I am, body, soul, and spirit. How do I conform? Who I, there's reality. How do I conform to that? For the modern person, he wrote this over 50 years ago, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men and women. You are the center of the world. Reality conforms to you. As the Microsoft ad has it, where do you want to go today? Now let me just pause for a moment and drive this home in case you think I've lost my mind and it's not as important as I seem to think that it is. We are now way past the culture of narcissism. Christopher Lash's book in the 70s. We're way past the rise of expressive individualism with Robert Bella. We're way past the famous book, Bowling Alone, which was about the 70s and the 60s and the disappearance of the intermediary structures in our home. We're no longer bowling alone. We're virtual bowling at home alone. (laughs) And it's even worse than that because now the revolution of technicization and self-actualization has driven reality so deeply, I call it interiorization, that we live in a culture of entire self-referentiality and self-definition. To the extent that, for example, we have people in our culture who define themselves with no relationship to the body in which they find themselves whatsoever. Because the self is the all-consuming driver of everything. Now, just in case you think this isn't important, just think of this one illustration. If you can believe it, and I promise you can go look it up, it really happens. One of the phenomenon in the culture in which we find ourselves in the West is people marrying themselves. That's right, you heard it here first. I'm not making it up. People are actually marrying themselves. There's actually a word for it. Did you know that? Sologamy. It happens so often they had to invent a word. This is not monogamy. This is, people actually do this. There's a post, New York Post article this week about a woman who did it. They do invitations. They, they have a festival. They bring people over. They have food. And they marry themselves. Now this is ludicrous and scary. The degree to which the idolatry of the self has become the all-consuming reality which defines everything. It's pitiful. Think of it. The God who made us to live with him forever, to live for his glory forever, That God, his mission has been reduced to a human being who's shriveled up and just worshiping the dark little dungeon of their own little ego. It's pathetic. Don't get taken in. You don't come to reality. Reality comes to you. You didn't make yourself. Ask your parents. You didn't make this day. You didn't make this church, you didn't make this diocese, you didn't make this state, you didn't make this country, you didn't make this world. If you go to see a painting, it's an important exercise in exactly what I'm talking about. You go to the Louvre, you go to the Mona Lisa, you have to do all the work. You have to get out of your car, you have to go to the Louvre, you got to find a parking place, you got to get to the second floor, you got to go in the room, and then when you finally get in the room, you think you're going to see the painting, and you can't because there's so many people in front of you, you can't see it. And when you finally get to see it, it's the first thing you think, always the same reaction. It's so small. I couldn't believe how small it was. I mean, this painting. But here's the thing. Mona Lisa existed before me. Mona Lisa is something that existed before me. If I wanted to deal with it, I had to let it come to me. I had to do all the work to get to it, not the other way around. It's not about me. It's about her and the painting and the the painter. 
The way that you deal with art, the way that you deal with other people, the way that you deal all the time in your life, the plane that you travel on exists before you. You get on the plane. The plane doesn't exist because of you. The plane doesn't get on you. That's not how reality works. You're in a culture that tries to transfer it entirely the other way around. Don't get fooled. Okay, that's enough on that before I get carried away. The the context of the call. Second, the cause of the call. I do want you to look at your text for a second and just appreciate. It It is incredibly important that you see the contrast between this story and the one that immediately preceded it. Seven times in these four verses, God is referenced. There are five eyes and there are two the Lord. Seven times. This is a God-centered passage. I will, I will, I will, the Lord God, the Lord God. As opposed to Genesis 11, you remember that, the tower, which was what? We will, we shall, we are going to do this in our own strength. We're going to build this idol. We're going to build this idolatrous temple to our own power and to our own strength. This is the antithesis of that. This is not human initiation and human worship. This is divine initiation and divine call. It stands in massive contrast. Now, I hope you'll agree with me, if you just stay with me for a second, that the, the invitation when it comes to you, whatever kind of invitation comes to you, you treat it with the importance with which it deserves, depending on the source from which it comes, right? So the more important the source the more seriously you take the invitation. So let me just give a couple of illustrations. So first of all, uh, we're in the mid-90s. I'm at St. Paul, Somerville. And uh, this is sort of very early, not, not a lot of cell phones. And this is the only time this has happened in my life. Somebody knocked on my door and gave me a phone message. That didn't happen. I usually got buzzed through. Or somebody told me a phone message at, at staff meetings. So the person knocks on my door and says, the presiding bishop called you. And I looked at him like I was a Martian. I said, What? She said, the presiding bishop wants to talk to you. And I, I don't know how much you remember about the Episcopal Church, right? They're bishops, they're really important people with pointy hats and things. And, and the presiding bishop is the first among equals, right? The presiding bishop never calls a parish priest. They especially don't call parish priests in parishes in South Carolina. And, and they, especially, they especially don't call parish priests who are assistants and not rectors in South Carolina. So what do you think I did? The first thing I did was I said, what did I do wrong? Right? That's the first thing, which is what everybody does when their boss calls and they have to return a message. They're worried. So, and I could find nobody in the parish that could figure out anything I did wrong. So worried was I called the Dawson office. I called the bishop. I said, Bishop, did I do anything wrong? Why is the presiding bishop calling me? Now, the, the point is, I took it with great seriousness because of the... Now, as it turns out, just so that I can finish the story, I had posted a pastoral situation online, and he had very uh, kindly called me to pray for me about this terrible pastoral situation that I had to deal with. So my fears were completely unfounded. But that's not the point. The point is, look at all that I did just in response to one phone message. Why? Because I consider the person important. So if the mayor calls you for lunch, you know, that's pretty important. If the governor calls you for lunch, that's even more important. If the president calls you for lunch, that's even more important. If you're the person who lives in England, and I, I do want to smuggle royalty into this, and you get a missive in the, in the post and it says, the queen would like you to come to Windsor Palace for lunch, how do you think the average English person responds to that? They go bananas. They tell everybody within their universe and they spend a year preparing, including their shoes and their hat and every, every other kind of thing that they're doing. Our God is the most important being in the universe, and he is the one who calls. How important is it? It's important as the importance of God. And God is the one who made heaven and earth. He is the most important thing in the universe, and he called Abram. 
And if God calls, it's even more important than the president or the queen, and we need to take it with that importance. You all with me? Third, the comprehensiveness of the call. Again, too often missed and sitting there in the text. It's in that little phrase. Do you see it there in your text? In you, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Fantastic stuff. Not a few families. Not many families. Not most families. Not any of those things. You see the word, all. And Jesus said to them in our gospel this morning, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of a few nations. No, some nations, no. Many nations, no. Most nations, no. All all nations. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It is scarcely possible to emphasize this point point sufficiently. Listen, our God is a global God. The God who made the world, who sent his son to redeem the world, who's coming back to judge the world, is sending Abram out to save the whole world. This is an ambitious story. This is an ambitious God. There are 7.9 billion people in the world, we are told. 195 nations in the world, we are told. And you cannot possibly read this story and not understand that God is after them all. Do you live like that? Do you know that? As a Christian, do you live locally but think globally? We shall return to that in due course. Fourthly, the contents of the call. There's something Abram's got to do. He's got to go, and he's going to be blessed. But I want you to see how it works. Blessed to be a blessing. That is to say, divinely down and then humanly out. It moves always from the center of God's circle out to the world. And he is blessed to be a blessing. And that word bless is a fantastic Hebrew word. It means to fill with the potency of life to fill with the potency of the fullness of life. And it means that when you think about what it means to be alive and to have your being and to express your emotions and to think with your mind and to feel with your heart and to move with your body and all that it means to be alive, the fullness of that kind of life, and then double it with a sense of spiritual life. And we are saved not simply for this world, but for the next. So we have physical life and we have eternal life. We have spiritual life. And God is the life giver. And that life... The the God who made the world and breathed into that earth and made life is the God who gives Abram the blessing of that life and that capacity to give life to others because he's blessed to be a blessing. And can I just throw in, just for a moment, the fact that that word earth is in there. I do care about this. It's not simply that God's after the whole world. It's that he's after the whole earth. God made the world... He sent his son to redeem the world, and he's coming back to the world. For those of you taking notes this morning, I want you to take this down. This is Luke 18, verse 8. Just a little throwaway line in one of Jesus' parables. Listen, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith, listen, on the earth? On the earth. 
God made the world. God sent his son to redeem the world. God is coming back to judge the world. And his mission is not simply global in the sense that he's after all people, but he's actually trying to bring back a bent world. The world has been impacted by our sin. And God is redeeming that too because ultimately we are destined to live in a new heaven and a new earth. So to care about God's mission is to care about the world. It is to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world. And it is to be blessed, to be a blessing not simply to the people in the world, but to the world itself. Finally, the chronology of the call. Again, it's just sitting there and so often missed, but one of the most important things. It's in that little phrase. It's actually at the end of verse 1, if you look at it. To the land that I will show you. That is to say, you've got to pause and stop the film and think about what this teaches us about how people live in time. And don't miss the fact, it's there in verse 4, that Abram was 75 years old. Last time I checked, that's a fairly significant amount of time to be walking around. He's got lots of memories. Not everything in his life has gone according to Hoyle. And God comes and says, go. And he comes and says, go. And he comes and says, go to. Which means what? It means this. It means, Abram, you must learn to live as a person of faith. And a person of faith only always lives in one direction in time. From the present to the future. It's the only way that we can live. I constantly tell people when they get mad at me, there's actually only two days that you have in the New Testament. You have today and you have that day. Today is the day in which you're alive. That day is the last and great and terrible day of judgment. Those are the only two days the Bible cares about. The only two days you don't have tomorrow. I don't either. It doesn't exist yet. We might not be here. I actually once got in trouble in a parish by saying some of the people who are here this year might not be here 12 months from now. I didn't say which ones. <laughs> but, I mean, I had people taking a ticket at the door, you know, saying, Do you, are, you, are you saying it's me? You know, you'd have, you'd have thought I shot them or something. I was just reminding them of their mortality. Yesterday's a closing door. You don't live there anymore is the way that one of the contemporary Christian groups puts it. There's something very profound being said in this passage about grief and about the way that you live in time in your own life. And it's this. We are trapped in the past. We are trapped with regret. And it is a constant issue in our lives because we suffer. And when you suffer, the one of the ways that you cope with it is you say this, if only, if only this had happened, if only that had happened, if only I had done this, right? What was the first thing I said when the presiding bishop called? What did I do wrong, right? I was already looking to the past, already looking to the past. I, uh, I worked with Mike Lumpkin for eight years at, at St. Paul Somerville in total. We, we overlapped for six, six of those years, became really close friends. His father was a priest. His grandfather was a priest. Michael's father was one of those priests that served in the Second World War, the so-called great generation, but also, also the silent generation. They didn't talk about the war very much. Some of them didn't talk about it at all. One time I was at Mike's house. We'd become friends over a long period of time, and I asked about his dad, And I asked if his dad ever talked about the war. It's a conversation I'll never forget because his dad, all his life, this is one of six kids, all his life, all the conversations they had, his father only spoke to him about the war one time, just once. He served as a chaplain on Tarawa. Tarawa was one of the many horrific battles in the Pacific theater. It's less well known than Okinawa because it was less bloody. We lost... 1,009 Marines on Tarawa. 
His father, who was a chapel, said, chaplain, said to Michael two things, and only two things, about that day. The first thing he said was, the blood on the beach was crimson red with the blood of all the Marines. But then he said something else, something that seared itself into my conscience and something that I've never, ever forgotten. He said, Michael, every single one of those Marines felt forward. Everyone. They all fell face down going forward. None of them had any other posture. Think of that. Hundreds of burials all going forward. Abram, don't you stay stuck here. Don't think about the past. It's from here forward. It's not if only. It's next time. It's next time. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful word about hope. It's a powerful word about how you deal with grief. It's a powerful word about how you work with time. You can waste an incredible amount of your life trying to live in the past and trying to redo things that you can't change. God doesn't want that for you. God wants you to live from here forward. It's the only time that you have. Yesterday's a closing door. You don't live there anymore. All right, I've wrapped up my five points. Now I'm going to ask a few questions and I'm done. Just a few. As I like to say, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling, and I am. So, so be, beware. First question, with my first point. I don't know why I don't get along with this microphone, Christopher. I don't know what I did to the microphone to deserve this, but anyway, I, I apologize for my uh, gym, gymnastics with the microphone. Here, here's my first question. Do you really realize what the implications are of the fact that you don't come to reality, reality comes to you? In the words of Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets, in one of her poems, she says this. She says, pay attention, be astonished. You would be amazed, brothers and sisters, of how much of our lives are spent not seeing what's in front of us. We could spend the rest of the morning on this. My poor wife, we've been married over three decades. I, 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 I have a strange relationship with 9-11. We all have different stories. My father grew up in New York. Our son lives in New York. It means a lot to me, and, and I was deeply impacted by that day. And I always have a certain ritual that I go about. And I told her this week, I said, I'm not going to do that this week because I'm preaching. So I'm not going to be drawn in. And there I am. I'm Sunday morning. I'm praying. I'm trying to work on the sermon. I'm running and I'm watching sports reviews. And then I turn the sports off and there's the daggum New York ceremony. <laughs> and, the, and the children's choir starts singing. I turn on the sound and that was it. That was it. I, that was the end of me. I was done. I spent the rest of the day, as I so often do, thinking about 9-11. And I asked myself the question, I hope you ask this question, have we learned all the lessons as a country of 9-11? Because there's an important lesson here, and it ties directly to this text, brothers and sisters. Do you realize that we were sleepwalking as a nation in 2001? We literally sleepwalked as a nation into the 21st century. People have forgotten this as a country. (laughs) As a a country, I'm just going to preach into the pulpit microphone because I I just can't do it. But as a country, we we, we had the dot-com bubble. Everybody and their sister was founding the latest Internet craze. 
um, it, it, Y2K was going on. There was enormous prosperity. We were enormously self-focused. We were enormously self-obsessed. And we weren't paying attention. And there had been a jihadist ideology that had been metastasizing throughout the world for at least a decade, if not two. So clear was the evidence of what was happening that we had a Minneapolis agent in the Minneapolis FBI field office write up a detailed report of one of the terrorists who was getting training to fly a plane. And it made her uncomfortable. It bothered her. She wrote it. She sent it to her supervisors in Washington. They didn't pay attention. They didn't think it was significant. We were asleep. Some of you are asleep to your spouse. Some of you are asleep to your, your, your kids. Some of you are asleep to your coworkers at job. I don't know what you're sleeping about, but I promise you there's some aspect of reality that God is trying to wake you up to this morning. And you've got to get into this passage and ask the hard question, what are you wanting me to notice and listen to, Lord, that's already there that I'm not seeing and not hearing? It's a crucial question. Secondly, I want to say something about that comprehensive call. You have never lived in a time where it's easier to live into this next point. To be a Christian is to be a global citizen. You can't do everything, brothers and sisters, but you can do what God's called you to do, and you must do what God calls you to do in the light of God's global concern. I don't know anybody here in in very much detail, but I can tell you this. God's probably this morning calling at least one family in this parish right now to some aspect of overseas mission. It might take five years. It might take seven years, but it starts now. But you've got to ask yourself where you are situated in God's world and what you are doing to help the, the, the mission of God advance throughout the whole world. Let me just give one example. You, can, you are in a position where you can adopt a country and pray for it. When I was in college, I was given this very point, and I adopted Togo. Now, you may not know anything about Togo. You can look it up in the CIA fact book or Wikipedia. You know, it, it, go, it goes uh, Nigeria and then Benin and then Togo over on the coast of West Africa. There's about 8.6 million people. They speak French. See, I know a few things. Why? Because I adopted Togo. It was my resp- I prayed for Togo every day. You may not have ever cared about Togo. I'm not asking you to adopt Togo. That's not the point. The point is you can be sitting at your computer as a Christian in South Carolina and be involved in God's global mission in a very specific way because you have at your fingertips something that none of your predecessors in history have ever had before. You have globalization and all of its resources. Use them. You can write a missionary. You can, you can form a partnership or a friendship with a missionary. You can pray specifically for people that make a difference in some foreign nation of the world. You can do that. It's important. This parish has a mission mindset. You can tell. But we need to live into it as individuals, are we? And then the last question is that, um, that, that little question about um, time. And I think I want to do it this way. Are you really willing to whis- w- wrestle with the Holy Spirit about the potential that you're stuck in time if there's anything you're stuck with? Or to ask it another way, is there anything clandestine in your life that's crippling you in time because you're stuck on the if-only record, which goes around and around on the turnstile, or to use modern metaphor, around and around on the CD, or whatever you want to use. But, it, but, but we all have tapes that we play, and they're traps. And you've got to ask yourself the question, am I stuck in anything where I'm saying if-only, and God's calling me to live from here forward? 
I was deeply impacted by Todd Beamer's witness. He's made famous by the Let's Roll. He was on Flight 93 in Pennsylvania. If you want to do yourself a treat this afternoon, we now have the transcript of his entire phone call with a woman. It, it, it moved me to tears. I'd already known about half of the contents of the call, but this week I read the whole call. But here's what I want you to think about. It actually applies directly to this point. Do you realize what the, the emotional work that Todd Beamer and those people on the plane had to do? Think about it. You're on a plane. He finds out in the context of the early part of that conversation that there have been two towers hit. There are two towers down. There's a plane that's hit the Pentagon. He finds all this out. Their plane is almost definitely going to Washington, D.C. They think it's going to hit the White House of the Pentagon. And he's on the plane. Now, here's the point. Think of it emotionally. What can he do? What can they do? What could they have done? Why am I stuck on this plane? Why me? Oh, God, what did I do wrong? There's all sorts of ways to bury yourself in that hole. You read the story, and what does he do? He says exactly the question you've got to ask. What does faithfulness mean for me right now in my circumstances from here forward? That's exactly what he did. And he stayed poised. And, and the four of them who were all athletes decided the only way it was going to work for, was for them to rush the plane. But don't underestimate the emotional work they had to do to get there. Not thinking about themselves. Not thinking about all the reasons they shouldn't be there. Not getting angry. Not getting guilty. Focusing on the present and living and falling forward. Just like those Marines. Thank God for those guys. That's real Christian faithfulness. You can make the argument that Todd Beamer prepared his whole life for that. Here forward, brothers and sisters, here forward. I, I don't know what you're stuck in the past about, but I do know that you are stuck in the past. So I offer you, brothers and sisters, the call of Abraham. And I, I want to put it to you this way. The God who called Abraham and the God who died for the world and who made the world and is coming back to judge the world is the God who calls us. And we've got to pause and ask, if God, if God is so great to make the world and redeem the world, if he's calling us, that must be really, really important. And we've got to pause and ask the question, what are the implications of God's call for me? As we are seated, let us pray. Use an Anglican prayer I slightly modified for today's purposes. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has bidden us to give thanks for all things and to forget not all your benefits, Accept our praise for the great mercies we have received at your hands. Give us ever grateful hearts and help us to magnify you in our daily life, especially this day and hereafter, as we respond fully to your call through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.